And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is December the 8th, 342nd day of the year. 23 days remain to the year's over with. The um, holidays and observances. It's Lost and Found Day. Pretend to be a time traveler day. National Brownie Day. And I don't mean the Junior Girl Scouts. National Lard Day. We got a lot of that in Congress. Hanukkah. Blue Christmas. Which honors the first responders. Uh, Gift of Sight Month. Operation Santa Paws. Worldwide Food Service Safety Month. National Write a Business Plan Month. National Tie Month. Go tie somebody up today. National Pair Month. Universal Human Rights Month. Alrighty. 395 A.D. Later, Jan is defeated by its former vassal, Northern Wee, in the Battle of Kanhe Slope. 757, the poet Du Fu returns to Chang'an as a member of Emperor Wanzong's court after having escaped the city during the Anlushan Rebellion. 877, Louis the Stammerer, son of Charles the Bald, crowned king of the West Frankish Kingdom at Campagne. 1504, Ahmed Ibn al-Jumlah writes his Oran Fatwa, arguing for the relaxation of Islamic law requirements for the forcibly converted Muslims in Spain. In 1660, a woman, either Margaret Hughes or Anne Marshall, appears on an English public stage for the first time, played the role of Desdemona in a production of Shakespeare's play Othello. Up until that point in time, men played the women's roles. 1851, conservative Santiago, uh, based government troops defeat rebels at the Battle of uh, Camila, signaling the end of the 1851 Chilean Revolution. 1854 in his apostolic constitution in Ephibus Duis, uh, Pope Pius IX proclaimed the dogmatic definition of immaculate conception, which holds that the Blessed Virgin Mary was conceived free of original sin. Now that's something, that attitude about the Pope is something I have a problem with. He proclaimed a dogmatic definition and you all going to go along with what I say, because I'm God's representative. 1864, Pope Pius IX promulgates the encyclical Quanta Cura and its appendix, the Syllabus of Eras, outlining the authority of the Catholic Church and condemning various liberal ideas. 1907, King Gustav V of Sweden accedes to the Swedish throne. 1912, leaders of the German Empire hold an Imperial War Council to discuss the possibility that war might break out. 1914, World War I, squadron of British Royal Navy defeats the Imperial German East Asia Squadron in the Battle of the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic. 1922, two days after coming into existence, the Irish Free State executes four leaders of the Irish Republican Army. 
1941, World War II. President Franklin D. Roosevelt declares December 7th to be a date that will live in infamy after which the U.S. declares war on Japan. 1941, World War II. Japanese forces simultaneously invade Shanghai International Settlement, Malaya, Thailand, Hong Kong, the Philippines, and the Dust East Indies. 1943, World War II. The German 117th Jaeger Division destroys the monastery of Megaspeliano in Greece and executes 22 monks and visitors as part of reprisals that culminated a few days later with the massacre of Calavarta. 1953, President Dwight D. Eisenhower delivers his uh, Adams for Peace speech, which leads to an American program to supply equipment and information on nuclear power to schools, hospitals, and research institutions around the world. 1955, the flag of Europe is adopted by the Council of Europe. 1962, workers at four New York City newspapers, which later increases to nine, go on strike for 114 days. And the world was a better place. 1963, Pan Am, Pan Am Flight 214, a Boeing 707, is struck by lightning and crashes near Elkton, Maryland. Killed all 81 people on board. 1966, the Greek ship SS Rockleon seeks in a storm in the GNC. Killed over 200. 1969, Olympic Airways Flight 954 strikes a mountain outside of Karatea, Greece kills 90 people in the worst crash of a DC, Douglas DC-6 in history. 1971, Indo-Pakistani War. Indian Navy launches an attack on West Pakistan's port city of Karachi. 1972, United Airlines Flight 553, a Boeing 737 crashes after aborting its landing attempt at Chicago Midway International Airport. Kill 45. This is the first ever loss of a Boeing 737. 1974, plebiscite site results in the abolition of the monarchy in Greece. 1980. Well, before we move on, uh, the monarchy of Greece was created by the London Conference of 1832. During that conference, the First Hellenic Republic was abolished. The uh, Greek crown was originally offered to Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, and he declined, later being elected the King of the Belgians. 1832, Prince Otto Bavaria of the House of Wittelsbach was styled His Majesty Otto I, King of Greece. He reigned for 30 years until he was deposed in 1862. After his deposition as king. The crown was offered a number of others, including the novelist and the former British colonial secretary Edwin Buller-Lytton. Had a state referendum was held in 1862 to name a new king. The vast majority of the Greeks wanted Prince Alfred, Duke of Edinburgh, to be the king. He won the referendum by 230,016 votes against the Duke of Luchtenberg. Alfred declined to be king and so did every candidate until Prince Wilhelm of Denmark for the House of Glucksburg. And he had only gotten six votes. He was elected unanimously by the Greek Assembly of King His Majesty, George I, King of the Hellenes. Um, there was a referendum in 1920 to restore Constantine I as monarch, but uh, 
Four years later, the Second Hellenic Republic was established and Marakka was abolished following a referendum in 1924. 1935, the monarchy was restored after a referendum and maintained until another referendum was held in 1946. July of 73, the Greek military junta called a referendum which abolished the monarchy for the second time in Greek history. And then in 1974, the democratically elected prime minister Konstantinos Karamanlis called a referendum that generally confirmed the abolition. Sometimes it's hard to be king. 1980, John Lennon is murdered by Mark David Chapman in front of the, the Dakota, an apartment building in New York City. Interesting thing is, when John Lennon was shot, um, there were a lot of rumors about Mark David Chapman and his relationship with um, other members of the Beatles. I don't know if anything ever came of that. 1985, the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, a regional intergovernmental organization and geopolitical union in South Asia is established. 1987, Cold War, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty signed by President Reagan and Soviet leader Gorbachev in the White House. Also in 87, an Israeli army tank transporter kills four Palestinian refugees and injures seven others during a traffic accident at the Erez crossing in the Israel-Gaza Strip border. That's been cited as one of the events that sparked the first intifada. Now, for those who are not familiar with that label, the first intifada, or the first Palestinian intifada, also known as Stone Intifada, uh, was a sustained series of protests and violent riots, riots carried out by Palestinians in the Israeli-occupied Palestinian territories and in Israel. It was uh, motivated by Palestinian frustration over uh, Israel's military occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. It began in the wake of the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. And we got lunatics at Harvard and some of the other Ivy League schools protesting, demanding an intifada now. Nineteen eighty eight. US Air Force A ten Thunderbolt two crashes into an apartment complex in Ramscheid, Germany, killed five people and injured fifty others. And as I've always said, if you get injured by a falling plane, you're having a bad day. Nineteen ninety the Galileo spacecraft flies past Earth for the first time. In 1998, 81 people were killed by armed groups in Algeria. 2001, a raid conducted by the Internal Security Department of Singapore foils a Jemaah Islamiyah plot to bomb foreign embassies in Singapore. 2004, the Cusco Declaration is signed in Cusco, Peru, established in the South American Community of Nations. Also in 2004, the Columbus nightclub shooting. Nathan Gale opens fire to the Rosa Villa nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. Killed former Pantera guitarist Dimebag Darrell and three others before being shot dead by a police officer. 2009 bombings in Baghdad, Iraq kill 127 and injure 448 others. 
2010, with the second launch of the Falcon 9 and the first launch of the Dragon, SpaceX becomes the first private company to successfully launch, orbit, and recover a spacecraft. Now, SpaceX is the Space Exploration Technologies Corporation. That's an American spacecraft manufacturer, launch service provider, defense contractor, and satellite communications company headquartered in Hawthorne, California. The company was founded in 2002 by Elon Musk with the goal of reducing space transportation costs and wants to colonize Mars. The company currently operates the Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy rockets along with the Dragon spacecraft. And it offers internet service through its Starlink satellites. It became the largest ever satellite constellation in January 2020. And as of November 2023, it has more than 5,000 small satellites in orbit. Meanwhile, the company's developing Starship, a human-rated, fully reusable, super-heavy-lift launch system for interplanetary and orbital spaceflight. On its first flight in April 2023, it became the largest, most powerful rocket ever flown. And it's the first private company to develop a liquid propellant rocket that's reached orbit to launch orbit and recover a spacecraft and to send a spacecraft to the International Space Station and to send astronauts to the International Space Station. So it's the first organization of any type to achieve a vertical propulsion landing of an orbital rocket booster and the first to reuse that booster. In fact, the company's Falcon 9 rockets have landed and reflown uh, more than 200 times. So Elon Musk has got a lot going for his uh, spacecraft company. In 2010, we saw the Japanese solar sail spacecraft, Icarus, pass the planet Venus at a distance of about 80,800 kilometers. 2013, riots broke out in Singapore after a fatal accident in Little India. For those who are not familiar with Little India, it's located east of the Singapore River across from Chinatown, which is located west of the river, and north of Kampong-Glam. Both areas are part of the urban planning area of, of Rokor. Little India is commonly known as Teka in the Indian Singaporean community. 2013, Metallica performs a show in Antarctica, making them the first band to perform on all seven continents. And on this date in 2019, we saw the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in China. Okay. We were talking yesterday about one of the last mysteries of Pearl Harbor. Now, the, um, the interesting thing is the sinking of the Sil- Sil- one more time, the Cynthia Olson was actually the first military action by the Japanese of World War II. It wasn't intended to be, but it was hit with torpedoes by the I-26, I think it was, about 15 minutes before Torah, 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 which was the attack of um, the Japanese uh, aircraft on Pearl Harbor. Another interesting fact that came to light is the uh, commander 
Uh, I think his name was Fushida. Um, he commanded the flight. And he actually, after the war, became an evangelist. He found God. And of course, the interesting thing is, he's been uh, fated, is the word uh, is used means honored by people in this country. He, um, the full story, his name is Mitsuo Fushida. And his story is in a book called Wounded Tiger. He's the Japanese pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then he converted to Christianity. Inspired by examples of love set by Americans Jacob DeShazer and Peggy Koval. He learned lessons of love, faith, and forgiveness after the war. Even though he spent his life up to that point living by the code of Bushido. But he, he got called to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. He announced his warrior past and traveled throughout the U.S., Japan, and Europe, preaching the, the word of Christ, salvation, and forgiveness. And according to, uh, in fact, his children became U.S. citizens. Which is interesting. The death and destruction he caused all wiped away. Alan was forgiven. The uh, the Pearl Harbor attack, in addition to destroying a number of, of our mainline ships, killed 2,403 Americans. That's the, the known number. There may be others who were uh, um, they sank or damaged 21 U.S. warships including the USS Arizona and the USS Oklahoma, destroyed or damaged 347 aircraft and killed 2,403 Americans. But all this forgiven. The uh, Historically, that is the way the Japanese have won two major uh, wars by the first surprise attack. Well, interestingly enough, the I-26 that I talked about yesterday was commanded by Minoru Yokota. It was considered the most advanced submarine in the Japanese fleet. Now, it was designed to be a globe-circling reconnaissance vehicle. One of the world's most advanced submarines when launched in November 1941. In addition to a torpedo and deck gun armament, it was capable of embarking a small float plane, though none were on board when she sailed on what became her first wartime voyage. Now, 
the I-26 was between San Francisco and Honolulu when it came across the um, the Cynthia um, Olson. He didn't want to waste a torpedo on it, so he surfaced, fired a shot across the bow to give the crew the chance to evacuate, and then tried to sink it with deck gunfire, which didn't work out that well. Eventually fired two torpedoes. The first one failed, and I mean it circled and eventually ran out of steam. And the second one pierced the hull, but such was the way the ship was designed, it didn't sink for quite some time. The two lifeboats uh, was enough to evacuate uh, the crew. Now there were three other ships that could have come to the rescue, but only one tried, and that was the Prince Robert, a Canadian uh, Navy ship. By the time they got to the area where the sinking happened um, there was no sign of the ship or the crew now the interesting thing because it was in fact the first um, engagement if you will it was talked about in the media, even uh, Roosevelt's wife uh, talked about it in some broadcast she did. Now the story of the Cynthia Olson was resurrected by uh, Riley Harris Allen who was the editor of the uh, Star Bulletin, one of Honolulu's two highly competitive daily newspapers. And he brought it up at a meeting he was to make a speech at. See, part of the problem is nobody had any idea what happened. All they knew was it sank. What happened to the crew? Nobody had an idea. Now, nearly 20 years after that first speech, Allen and the Star Bulletin again investigated the Cynthia Olson story. Now, he had researched it by himself uh, throughout that time. It was kind of a hobby. And part of the issue, well, there, there were no records. The only one that knew what happened for sure was the captain of the I-26, and his reports went into the Japanese files in Tokyo. And... In 1966, Canadian-born Alf Pratt, 
was pursuing a master's degree in journalism from the University of Hawaii. I also worked as a general assignment reporter for the Star Bulletin, and by this time, Alan was uh, had a terminal illness, and he Pratt did his thesis on the history of the newspaper, and of course, he interviewed Alan. And when he finished the interview, he says, anything else you'd like to tell me before I go? And Alan told him the story about the Cynthia Olson. And he said, why don't you follow up on that story? There's a lot more that could be done with it, and I'd like you to do it. So when Pratt got back to the Star Bulletin, he talked to his editor about doing the story. Uh, Bud Smizer, who had been in Hawaii a long time, and said he'd heard about the ship, but as far as he knew, nobody had done an in-depth story about it. So Pratt's editors assigned him to do a multi-part series on the Cynthia Olsa's disappearance. And those articles would attempt to answer the three questions Allen posed at his talk in 1947. And then we're going to run the series beginning December 3, 1966, just before the 25th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. The uh, Pratt was told to do regular reporting every day till noon, after which he was to concentrate on uh, the ship's story. Well, taking the material Allen had given him as a starting point, Pratt began to contact the history branches of both the Army and the Navy, wanting copies of any and all official documents relating to the Cynthia Olson. And he was also wanting to get a copy of... Uh, the Lurleen's radio log. That was a passenger, excuse me, hiccups again, passenger ship who heard the uh, SOS. And uh, their log had been ca- uh, confiscated by San Francisco, uh, in San Francisco by Navy Lieutenant Commander Preston Allen. Um, Pratt was interested of exactly when the attack on the Cynthia Olson took place. Unfortunately, Pratt's hope regarding the quick rediscovery of the radio log were dashed. The June 12th letter to the reporter that accompanied photocopies of the few pertinent documents held by the Navy, Dr. Dean Allard, a staffer at the Naval History Division in Washington, D.C., said he contacted the FCC regarding the radio log. Logs dating from 41 had been removed from their records and destroyed. But there was, he said, the possibility the parent company had copies. Now you got to ask yourself, why those radio logs would have been destroyed? A lot of unanswered questions. But he discovered that um, from the Lurleen's former chief radio operator that maybe the log wasn't destroyed. So they asked the Star Bulletin San Francisco Bureau Chief to, to get involved. And the teletype he sent June 7th said uh, Aspen Advisory believes Le- Le- Leslie Grogan of 13 Belford Drive in Daly City, who was in the radio shack of the Lurleen that morning, is 
located the log. So, um, the San Francisco Bureau Chief was asked to contact Grogan to see if he's located the log. Well, it seems unlikely that Grogan actually had a lead on the original log. He'd most probably been uh, spinning a self-aggrandizing yarn for Asplund's benefit. Apparently, uh, Grogan had that reputation. In any event, when contacted by the Star Bulletin's uh, bureau chief, the former radio operator was able to provide either the radio log or any useful information about it. But after locating and corresponding with Ray Farrell, the radio operator who had picked up Lorraine's initial notification of the Sancho uh, Olson's distress call, he attempted to locate the station's incoming message logs for December 7, 1941. But unfortunately, the logbooks had been destroyed in the late 50s following Global Wireless, a uh, source of my World Communication Company. Uh, that was a subsidiary of the IT&T Corporation. Well, they were repeatedly stymied in his search for the radio logs that would help him determine what time the attack took place. Platt had better luck when he went looking for people either directly involved in the event or who were relatives of the Cynthia Olson crewman. He said he got a lot of names from Riley Allen's research and one person led to another. And in addition to uh, personnel from the Lorraine Lurleen and uh, Globe Wireless's uh, personnel. Reporter corresponded with Thyra Carlson, who was the wife of the captain of the Cynthia Olson and the brother of the ATS quartermaster, Roland Dodd, and Arrow Woods, and of third officer James Mills. The um, you know. It was difficult and time-consuming to do this type of research. I've done similar research. But he was fortunate that many of the details not available to his boss in 47 had come to light. In October 1966, Pratt uncovered two pieces of information that proved just how lucky he was. While pouring over a Related answer to an inquiry he'd made of this story in the 13th Naval District, the reporter came across two interesting pieces of information. The identity of the submarine that sank the Cynthia Olson, that was the I-26. The name of the Japanese vessel's captain. Well, that was Minoru Yokota. Now, while attacking Cynthia Olson had been entirely in line with the orders Yokota received before taking the I-26 out to sea. The sub-captain and his crew were anxious to find prey more important to the Allied war effort than uh, a lumber freighter, which is how the Cynthia Olsen was operating at that point in time. And believing he had a better chance of locating more lucrative targets closer to the U.S. West Coast, he set an eastward coast course almost immediately after turning the I-26 away from the burning, listing, and doomed Cynthia Olsen. And for three days, he gradually zigzags in the way in a general direction of San Francisco. He hoped to stumble across a major warship or maybe a heavily laden tanker. Found no targets, was on the verge of shifting his search further south when he got an electrifying message from Vice Admiral Shimizu. 
Six Fleet Commander, Japanese Six Fleet, was broadcasting from aboard his flagship, the Katori, which by that time was anchored in the vast lagoon of Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands. And he reported at 8.40 in the morning, local time, on December 9th, Lieutenant Commander Mishimuni Inaba of the Submarine Squadron 1 Boat I-6, patrolling the Kauai Channel southwest of Oahu, had sighted uh, U.S. Navy Lexington-class aircraft carrying two cruisers heading northeast from the Hawaiian Islands, apparently bound for the west coast of the U.S. Jim has used a message directed to I-26 and all other submarine squadron two boats to locate and attack the carrier and her escorts. Uh, Yokota plotted the American ships most likely track between Hawaii and San, both San Diego and San Francisco and spent the next four days trying to intercept the vessels. Well, on December 14th, the I-26 was one of nine submarines ordered to take up station just off the U.S. West Coast and attack any shipping they might encounter. Yokota's assigned patrol area was the waters off Washington's uh, Cape Flatter in the entrance to the Strait of Juan de Fuca. But even as he shaped a course for the Pacific Northwest, a Japanese skipper got a message from the Imperial Japanese Navy headquarters instructed him and the commanders of the other subs to take a coordinated surface attack on the that is December 25th. Each sub was to fire 30 deck gun rounds at targets such as harbor facilities, coastal defenses, bridges, and oil refineries, and then attack any ships that came out looking for them. I-26 arrived off Cape Flattery on December 20th, but two days later, Admiral Yamamoto proposed the postponed the attack until December 27th. About the 90 of December 26, most of the subs assigned to the attack were running perilously short of fuel. So Sixth Fleet uh, Commander Shimizu canceled the operation, ordered all nine boats to make for anchorage at uh, Kwajalein. The I-26 reached the Marshall Islands on January 11, 1942, with her fuel tanks almost empty. Over the next weeks, Lakota and his crew labored to get their boat back into fighting trim. That process was interrupted uh, on February 11th, when aircraft from USS Enterprise raided uh, Kwajalein, damaging Katori and several other vessels, I-26 escaped harm simply by submerging at her anchorage until the American planes departed. Over the following months, Yokota and the I-26 took part in a variety of operations, including supporting the unsuccessful March 5th Japanese flying boat attack on Pearl Harbor. Very few people knew there were two attacks was called Operation K-1. It tended to disrupt ship repair activities at Pearl Harbor. Built around two four-engine Koanishi H-8K-1 flying boats. They launched from the French frigate Shoals some 510 miles southwest of Oahu and managed to drop a total of four bombs on a residential district of Hawaii of Honolulu before returning to French frigate Shoals. The attack really didn't do any damage and caused no injuries, but it did show Hawaii how vulnerable they were. Submarine then returned to Yokosuka for a much-needed overhaul and was still in dry dock on April 18th when a U.S. Army Air Force B-25B Mitchell light bomber flown by Lieutenant Edgar McElroy attacked a naval base as part of the famed Doolittle Raid launched from the carrier USS Hornet. You know, the I-26 wasn't damaged and 
May eleventh departed Yokosuka for a familiar destination. Went back to the entrance to the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Well, as on her first voyage, yeah, twenty six headed north after leaving Japan. Been reassigned to submarine squadron one and operating in company with Commander Meiji Tagami's I twenty five. Uh, Yokota reconnoitered uh, Kodiak and several nearby Alaskan islands in preparation for the Japanese invasion of Atu and Kiska. Though by the time the landings took place on June 6th and 7th, uh, I-26 was already patrolling 35 miles southwest of Clayton Fattery. It was there on uh, Sunday, June 7th that Yokota and his men found and sank their second victim. Watching through his periscope, the Japanese captain... Uh, Spotted a 3,286-ton freighter, the SS Coast Trader. Had the same island, uh, three islands silhouette as the Cynthia Olsen. And there were some other parallels, though Yokota couldn't have been aware of them at the time. Been spotted by the I-26. She was carrying timber and 1,250 tons of newsprint from Port Angeles, Washington, to San Francisco. Well, given his proximity to the U.S. mainland, Yokota elected to attack with torpedoes loaded in his deck gun and made no attempt to stop the vessel first to allow Captain Lyle Havens and his 55-man crew to take to the lifeboats. Just after 2 p.m. local time, the Japanese ca uh, commander ordered Lieutenant Saito to fire a single six-year torpedo, which almost to the surprise of the Japanese submarine, uh, submariners uh, ran straight and true, hit the freighter and her Starboard side just after the midship's house. An explosion called massive damage killed the ship's engine and created an immediate list that prevented the vessel's army gun crew from engaging the enemy sub. Well, Havens realized this ship was doomed, ordered everybody into the boats, and everybody but one man who died from exposure were rescued over the next two days by the fishing boat, the Virginia One, and the Royal Canadian Navy Corvette HMCS Edmonston. Well, buoyed with their success, the men of the I-26 spent the next 13 days trying to recreate it. They couldn't locate a suitable target, though, and Yokota decided there was other ways to inflict damage on the enemy. Just after 10 p.m. local time on the night of June 20th, he surfaced the, the sub some 3,000 yards off the Estevan Point Lighthouse on the west coast of Vancouver Island, and over the next 30 minutes, his gunners fired nearly... 20 5.5-inch rounds at the structure. It wasn't the Japanese sailors' best examples of marksmanship, though, for though a concussion of the exploding shells broke the lighthouse windows, they failed to accurately hit the 100-foot-tall tower or any of its associated structures. This attack, the first enemy shelling of uh, Canadian soil since 1812, wasn't a complete failure. Canadian government's subsequent decision to extinguish the light caused significant disruptions to shipping in their approaches to the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Well, I-26 didn't use her weapons again for just over a month, but when she did, her target was vastly more important and her aim was a lot better. Last day of August, the submarine was operating far from British Columbia off her Spiritu Santo in the New Hebrides as part of the Japanese task force uh, battling U.S. Navy units in the aftermath of the American invasion of Guadalcanal. Just after midnight on September 1st, Yakota surfaced the boat to recharge his batteries. Almost as soon as his lookout reached their perches on top of the conning tower, they saw the lights of what proved to be several American ships. 
Well, at that moment, Yokota ordered a crash dive and spent hours playing a potentially lethal game of cat and mouse with American escort ships. The I-26 surfaced at about 6.30 in the morning. Uh, the U.S. vessels were nowhere to be seen, though scarce an hour later, the lookout manning his sub's night binoculars sighted a very large ship at a range of about a mile and a half. Dakota decided he was looking at a Lexington-class carrier and ordered a decks clear for diving. He's already formulating his attack plan. Once it carries periscope death, he determined the target's course and speed, and to his deep report, realized he wouldn't be able to set up a firing solution on the carrier before it moved out of range. Just as he was about to admit defeat, the target and her escorts changed course back toward him, and Yakota ordered the forward tubes ready. When the carrier, which by this point the Japanese subskipper identified as the Saratoga, was in a thousand yards, he ordered uh, Sado to fire a six torpedo spread, only to be told there was some kind of malfunction. By the time the issue was resolved, Saratoga had changed course again, and Yokota had no choice but to try to maneuver back into firing position. 7.46 in the morning, he was back in position, at which point he fired the six torpedoes and, and took his ship down to a maximum depth of 330 feet. Barely two minutes later, as the I-26 was making off at flank speed, Yokota and his crewmen felt the uh, concussion of a torpedo hit. Though the Japanese were certain it crippled or even doomed the carrier, the Saratoga suffered no casualties. Only slightly damaged by the torpedo, she was back in action after repairs at Pearl Harbor. Well, the I-26's next victim didn't get off so lightly. It's before noon on November 3rd, 1942. The submarine sighted the American cruiser San Francisco, Helena, and Juno. All three had been damaged before dawn that morning, and the Wild Melee, who historians later call the First Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, and Olympic Tour de Espiritu Santo for repairs. Well, seeing a uh, once in a lifetime opportunity, Yakota fired a spread of three torpedoes. San Francisco and Helena both escaped unscathed, but one of the weapons slammed into the Juno, detonating on her port side. A midship, the exact spot where she'd been hit in the earliest surface battle. And that torpedo ignited a massive explosion in the damaged cruiser's main magazine. The effect was most immediate and catastrophic. The Juno was blown in half and sank within minutes. Fearing further Japanese attacks and keeping with standing orders, the captains of the San Francisco and Helena didn't stop their vessel to rescue survivors, of whom there were about a hundred out of the 700-man complement on board the Juno. Rescue forces didn't return for more than a week, and by that time they did. By the time they did, sharks and exposure killed all but ten of those who survived the sinking. The um, among those who died on the uh, in the Juno sinking were the the famous five Sullivan brothers. After helping to evacuate Japanese troops in Guadalcanal, I twenty six went on to participate in a. March 1943 Battle of the Bismarck Sea and the next month found her patrolling off the east coast of Australia. And it was a good hunting ground for Yokota and his men. During an April 11th attack on a convoy southeast of Cape Howe, Victoria, they sank the Yugoslav freighter Resina, 4,732 tons. And two days later, they destroyed the 2,125-ton steamer Kawara, another dead ringer for the Cynthia Olsen. Uh, the uh, Kawara was uh, 
part of Australia's um, Howard Smith line. After surviving a particularly determined depth charge attack by our own New Zealand Air Force, a Hudson Patrol bomber off Suva, Fiji, in June, the I-26 returned to Yokosuka at the end of August for a refit and get back in battle, uh, get ready to go back into war. Soon after seeing his boat safely in the dry dock, Yokota got orders to pass command of the I-26 to Lieutenant Commander Tosho Kasakan to get a position on the staff of Submarine Squadron 1. That job was only temporary, though. The Imperial Japanese Navy had bigger things in mind for the man credited with sinking the Juno. Barely six weeks after leaving the I-26, Yokota was named equipping officer for the I-44. That was a Type B-2 boat laid down in June of 42, nearing completion at Yokosuka's naval arsenal. And though outwardly identical to the I-26 and the other I-15 class vessels, I-44 and five other I-40 class B-2s built as part of the uh, Marukiyu program were constructed of higher quality steel and had diesel engines of a simpler and more economical design. Yokota shepherded that new submarine through her fitting out period and was officially named her commander on the day of her commissioning, January 31, 1944. And though he hoped to use this new submarine to wreak havoc on Allied shipping, his eight months in command were a letdown. Not only did two war patrols fail to produce a single victory on the second voyage, the I-44 herself nearly became a casualty. May 27, 1944, while running on the surface near New Ireland in the Bismarck Archipelago, the Japanese submarine was jumped by an Allied aircraft. The attacker, who hadn't been detected by the I-44's Type 13 air search radar, managed to score several near misses with bombs before Yokota crash-dived the sub. And then it was set up on by patrol boats, called in by the aircraft, and over the next few hours, Yokota and his crew endured a merciless uh, depth charging that left their vessel damaged and taken on water. After determining the attackers had moved on, Yokota surfaced his ship only to find he couldn't dive again. So the nine-day voyage back to Curry was made entirely on the surface, and several radar sightings of Allied aircraft along the way ensured that neither captain nor crew got much sleep. Well, when he got back on September 16th, he relinquished command of the submarine to Lieutenant Commander Genbai Kawaguchi. After more temporary staff work, Yokota was kicked upstairs, becoming the commanding officer of Submarine Division 52, and in the process getting promoted to captain. It was a short-lived billet, though, for World War II and the Pacific was coming to an end. Atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and 9th led the Emperor Hilio accepting in it and that little bit inevitability of defeat. In a recorded August 15th radio address, he announced to his people Japan had accepted the Allies' demand for unconditional surrender. Yokota, like the vast majority of his countrymen, was in shock by the capitulation. Though happy and somewhat surprised, he survived the conflict because both the I-26 and the I-44 were lost with all hands. He was dismayed by the rapid change in his own circumstances. From respected, highly decorated naval officers reduced within weeks to being a, both penniless and jobless. That was difficulties among hundreds of former Japanese naval officers interrogated by Allied war crimes investigators in the month following the surrender. The Imperial Japanese Navy had participated in many of the worst atrocities committed against Allied combatants and civilians during the war. 
And as both a former sub-captain and senior staff officer, Yakota was closely questioned by his, about his own wartime actions and those of others. But since the United States Navy hadn't yet, at that point, completed the process of collating the names of Allied vessels sunk by Japanese submarines and allotting them to the submarine in question, it's not clear whether either the Cynthia Olson or the Juno came up during the questioning. While the records of Yokota's interrogation haven't been, have not survived, he must not have been under suspicion at that point. Because in January 3rd, 1946, the fish out of water, as he was called, was offered a chance to go back to sea. Much to his surprise, he was recalled to service and told he was the captain of warship. Well, Japan's capitulation left hundreds of thousands of the nation's service members stranded throughout Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And in the months following the surrender, Tokyo, under the supervision of Allied occupation authorities, put together an ambitious plan to repatriate Japanese military personnel as quickly as possible. Remnants of the former Imperial Japanese Navy were tapped to play the primary role in the repatriation effort, and dozens of surviving warships were converted into passenger vessels. And one of the ships so converted was the light cruiser Kashima. One of the two sisters of Katori, the flagship of the Imperial Japanese Navy submarine fleet. After having the barrels of all their main guns cut off and in addition of a deckhouse constructed around her main mast, the ship uh, departed October 10, 1945, and was to be the first of 12 repatriation uh, voyages. Well, the um, Yokota, like many other Japanese officers, converted from Buddhism to Christianity. He was actually, actually baptized. Soon after his initiation of the church, the former sub-commander met uh, Misuko Hasegawa, a Christian widow with three young daughters. At the time of their marriage in October 1957, Yokota adopted his new wife's last name. That's a fairly common practice in Japan when a man marries a widow with female children. Whether Yakota considered it or not, the change also relieved him of the name that within a few years be irrevocably connected with the Imperial Japanese Navy, the war, and the deaths of several hundred Allied seamen. In the years following his second marriage, uh, Minoru Asagawa, as he was now known, continued teaching mathematics at the high school in Fujisawa, where his wife taught home economics. And he played a major role in helping to raise Mitsuko's uh, three daughters. And in the spare time he had, he did volunteer work in the Department of World Missions at Sutada's church in um, But one day in 1966, a note was left on the front door of his house and brought the whole story to life again. Well... It's interesting to note that if you search long enough and hard enough, you can get the answer to almost any question. 
So that note was a request to be interviewed by reporters at the Star Bulletin. And uh, the newspaper had uh, high hopes for the Cynthia Olson uh, series. Everybody in the newsroom was enthusiastic about the project, and it was a team effort. Although uh, Pratt was the sole writer, supervising editor Edwards' input was invaluable. The uh, Pratt said he started out writing it as he was doing a master's thesis, but his editor helped him calm down, trim thousands of words from the story. Well, these stories became what was called the prelude to Pearl Harbor. Um, Cynthia Olson, its story was not a major earth-shaking um, issue, but it is worth noting that if in fact it was the very first engagement in World War II with the Japanese, it does become at that point a major issue. The uh, according to personnel on board the Lurleen, the distress call was picked up and it was sent automatically as soon as the the uh, shells were fired. It was sent at eight o'clock ship time, and that was seven o'clock Honolulu time. Now, of course, all the records vanished. This is a lot of people's memory. And Yokota was remembered a great deal since it was his first uh, sea victory. Now, there was an assertion in 1946 by Ray Farrell to Riley Allen that um, Globe Wireless's Muscle Rock Station got the Lurleen rebroadcast of Cynthia Olson's distress message at 9.30 a.m. San Francisco time. And that would have been 7 a.m. Honolulu time. Now, the commander of the uh, Japanese submarine was adamant when he was questioned. No shots were fired at the lifeboat, at either lifeboat. So the question becomes, what happened to the crew? 
the um, the Japanese themselves believe the I-26 fired on the Cynthia Olson prior to the Tora 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 message that the attack on Pearl Harbor had begun. So the Cynthia Olsen was in fact the first casualty of World War II for the U.S. And it was fired on before the attack at uh, Pearl Harbor. But the Army wanted it kept quiet. In an attempt to determine well, the early notification of the attack on Central Ol the Cynthia Olsen might have changed the course of events at Pearl Harbor. Uh, Dr. W.J. Holmes, a former Navy intelligence officer and past dean of the University of Hawaii, said uh, he was very unequivocal. Earlier warning wouldn't have made any difference. Added that by prompting the ships of the Pacific Fleet to hurriedly put to sea, such a warning might even have caused a greater loss than did take place. Instead of being sunk in shallow water from which they were raised and put back into surface, if they were further out to sea and in deeper water, he might have been gone for good. Well, according to um, Rear Admiral Samuel Morrison, if there had been an alert, more anti-aircraft guns might have been in a better position to fire, more American planes could have been in the air rather than parked on landing strips. There's no doubt even a half-hour warning would have made a difference, and an hour would have made a lot of difference. See, one of the things about the security services when they move in and put the lid on things, they cover up the good and the bad. They make sure errors go away. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We will do one last segment on the last mystery of Pearl Harbor in our next show. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.